0: Alright friends, this is Brother Jonathan back here in the woodshed for another podcast. This time we have something really exciting to talk about. It's a kind of a controversial topic, but we are not scared of controversial topics whatsoever. We want to talk about alcohol use in the Christian. Is it okay for a Christian to drink? So that's what it's ahead. Let's stay tuned. friends, here we are. We're back in the woodshed. This is Brother Jonathan. I'm very thankful for you to tune back in with me and and stay for another podcast. Uh, I want to deal with something that uh, is quite controversial. It shouldn't be controversial, but it just simply is because of the time in which we live and because of uh, honestly, people not being able to read the Bible thoroughly or correctly, or or absent from a cultural bias, and and so with that, we've come to a place in society where um, even within the Christian Church, the contents of the Scriptures are um, are hotly debated over topics that honestly have been clear, have been clear in the historical Church, and uh, and are clear today in the Holy Scriptures, but in the pews. Uh, And honestly, in the pulpits too, we have a problem. We have a real problem with people just simply reading their Bible saying, this is what God says and leaving it at that. We very often want to add in our own interpretation, our own flair, our own preferences, and we're actually warned about that. Uh, so in the book of Deuteronomy, God warns his people and in the book of Exodus, as he gives them the initial 10 commandments, it says that he said nothing more, nothing less. That's exactly what they're supposed to follow. And um, but, you know. They, after hearing God's commands, immediately began to write their own religion. And that's what Jesus came into. That was his problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees, is where they wanted to follow the commandments of men more than the commandments of God. They had created a religion upon a religion and were trying to hold people to that made-up religion versus just simply what God says. And so that's what we're having to deal with in the United States. That's what we're having to deal with in the Southern church, uh, especially, where we have a lot of roots. We have a lot of religious rootedness in the Southern states. But our problem is, is that sometimes we left the Holy Scriptures for our unholy opinions, and we want to carry those to Scripture, and we want to justify what we think with Scripture instead of having what we think formed by Scripture, and so that's what we look for. So the Southern Church is still has a, a, a large um, contingent. That would uh, probably not identify themselves as teetotalers, but that's really what they are. Where they don't uh, they don't believe in drinking whatsoever. They consider it a sin that the Christian is to never drink a drop of any intoxicant whatsoever. No wine, no beer, no mixed drink, no strong liquor, no anything for the Christian. The Christian is to abstain from all of those things. And that really dates back to the Prohibition era, you know, in the 1920s to the early 30s. Uh, we had a big battle uh, over alcohol consumption in the United States. And uh, the southern uh, the southern states were kind of a lock-block contingent against the consumption of alcohol whatsoever. And so, uh, you know, they banded together. The 18th Amendment got passed, which outlawed the, uh, the sale and the distribution of, of alcohol, of any intoxicant whatsoever. And so, uh, and, and so they outlawed it. And for that you know, 12, 13, 15 years, somewhere in that range, they, uh, there was no alcohol to be manufactured, to be sold, or to be distributed in the United States but even then even then with prohibition that was brought about by the religious south partnering with some of the religious denominations in the northern uh in the northern states even then there was an exception for religious use of wine they made an exception for it in the case of religion so the religion shut it down but left a loophole for religion, for religious purposes. There was a religious purpose in the use of wine. So when they did this, all that happened was they kind of just made an underground market for it. And much the same as we see today with illicit drugs, where we have the war on drugs, and all it's done is make people a lot of money and increase the amount of uh, you know drugs that are in America. We have many much more drugs in America today than when we initially started the war on drugs. So we're, we're losing the war on drugs. In the same way... Uh, when they did this, what happened was breweries popped up along the Mexican border, along the Canadian border. Uh, They started writing exceptions in, you know, there was an exception for religious use. So the church could have, you know, some of these, um, you know, older, more orthodox uh, denominations, Uh, the Catholic church and, and the orthodox Protestant denominations still used wine for the observance of the Lord's Supper. And that was okay. But uh, then even you could have private ownership or private production of wine, and that was okay too. You could actually produce up to 200 gallons of wine in your home for your private consumption, and there was nothing that the government could do about it whatsoever. It was completely legal. So it's illegal unless you do it at home. Then also you could go to the doctor and the doctor could write you a prescription for beer, for alcohol, or for strong wine—wine wine that had up to 22 uh, percent, uh, you know, alcohol content. That's 44 proof. That's like most of your whiskeys and all today is about 40 proof. And uh, and so uh, you know, you could actually go to the doctor and get a prescription, walk down to the drugstore, and walk out with your alcohol. So you had to go to the doctor, you had to make it at home, or you had to go to church, but it was really just trying to shut down the bar, trying to shut down that roaring 20s mentality where there was a ton of drinking going on. I mean, that's something that's been in the United States for a long time. Uh, even all the way back into the mid-1800s, they, uh, they say that the average consumption per week Of alcohol was one and a half bottles of liquor per American. Per week—that's astounding. That's much more than you would even you know think about now. But that's just how it was. that, that was the custom at the time, and all the way up until that you know late uh, teens, early nineteen twenties, where prohibition really kicked in, and we had a federal uh, you know a federal prohibition against it with the constitutional amendment, the Eighteenth Amendment to our Constitution. And so, uh, you know, then, you know, the uh, since you could make it at home, then the sale of fruit juices went through the roof. You know, the sale of grape juice, uh, you know, almost quadrupled. And a lot of the uh, fruit juice manufacturers would actually have a warning label on the back of their on the back of the bottle of fruit juice telling you to not do these steps or else this fruit juice will turn into wine. They were just telling you how to do it without telling you how to do it. They were saying, "Now don't you do this, or else this is going to happen." And so, you know, they sold a lot more fruit juice because all they had to do was just leave it in a dark place with a you know piece of uh, cheesecloth over it for sixty days and allow the natural yeast to ferment. And you know what do you know? Two months later, my old uh, my old grape juice just turned into wine. You know, uh, you know mm-hmm. how did that happen? You know, wonder wonder what happened there. And so, you know, these, it it kind of served a purpose, but at the same time, where there's a will, there's a way. People find a way to skirt the law. They find a way to make exceptions. Even in today's world, where illicit drugs are illegal, they're all over the place. They're in your neighborhood. They are, you know, in your kid's school. They're at the kids' colleges. They're in the workplace. Um, you know, people are doing drugs in the bathroom at their, you know, at their job and getting fired. Uh, people are coming back from lunch, you know, high on something. And then if they can't obtain it illegally, they just go to the doctor and they go to the doctor and they can get all kinds of mind-altering substances, pain pills and such, from the doctor. Uh, You go in, say you can't pay attention, and they give you Adderall, which kids are smashing up and snorting. Um, It's the same thing all over again. The war on drugs is prohibition, and it's failing just the same way that prohibition failed. Prohibition only took about uh, 10 or 12 or 15 years before they repealed it with the 21st Amendment, and uh, all it did was, um, you know, kind of create these cottage industries. People had to be creative for a little while, but uh, even in the South where, you know, it was much more teetotaler against it, you know, uh, you know, uh, lips that touch alcohol, don't touch these lips, you know, that you famous uh, picture of the ladies, you know, um, you know, standing out protesting the use of alcohol, uh, all of these things All it did was create this network of bootlegging. All it did was create more crime. And, uh, well, we did get NASCAR from it. So if you're a NASCAR fan, you know, then great. That came from bootlegging. I guess that's one thing that we got from it that was positive. But uh, really what that whole movement was, was an effort to legislate morality, which you can't do. You can't make somebody moral. All you can do is set up penalties for immoral Behavior. So, you know, the outward manifestation of immorality you can punish, but you can't make them inwardly moral. That's not something that she, that you can do. That's something that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's something that God does, not that you do. So that's why a president will never save our nation. That's why moms and dads in Christian homes raising Christian children and pastors in pulpits proclaiming the word of God is the salvation of our country, not the legislature, not the Senate, not the judicial branch, not a president. We're not waiting for any of those to bring us back to God. It'll take place in the home with moms and dads raising goodly and godly children and educating them in the ways and the ethics and the morals and the judgments of our God. That's the only way it's going to happen. And also, when we Uh, don't have a historical perspective over these things. Uh, When the war on drugs was proposed, we should have immediately looked back at the war on alcohol and saw all of the loopholes, all of the problems, you got to shut down the borders, you can't make exceptions, you can't allow the the doctors to prescribe something that would be illegal if Joe made it in his bathtub. You know, we have to cut out the exceptions if we're really going to try to rid ourselves with this. We got to keep it from coming in, we got to quash down on the production of it, and we can't let you have a license to sell it if it's illegal. If it's an illegal substance, it's illegal whether a, whether a doctor sells it to you or whether some dude on a street corner sells it to you. Um, that's just how it has to be treated. When you start making exceptions, when you allow things into the country, uh, when you have open borders, these things, you're never going to win that battle because ultimately it comes down to a battle of morality. And those who have no morality have no reason to stop. And if we would have just looked back in church history... Then we would have saw that the first Protestant, the original protester, that Martin Luther, after he nailed the ninety-five theses on the Wittenham uh, Church doors, uh, and and that he went to his home, and, and you know they lived in, I believe, an old monastery. Uh, that he and his wife, his wife actually started a brewery, and that the early church was financed through the sale of beer to the taverns. A lot of our hymns that we know and love were put to bar tunes. And so we kind of have a history here with it, you know, a, a actual, um, you know, an actual uh, perspective historically upon these things. So not only do we have a history in the church, not only do we have a history in our culture, in our nation, but then we also have this issue within scripture itself. So people tried to make the case within scripture for the teetotal movement, for the prohibition movement, and uh, and honestly, it was just a really sad case. It was a bad argument, and even today, these bad arguments still exist. The very first miracle that we see Jesus perform is at a, is at a wedding, and at this wedding, they run out of wine. His mother comes to him in a panic that, hey, this is embarrassing for this couple. They've run out of wine and tells Jesus basically do something, you know, hey, you, you can fix this. You do this. And so Jesus tells them to pull these large water pots, you know, and for them to fill them up. And then he says, all right, now dip the water out and go take it to the, you know, to the, you know, to the guests, and so then it said that you know all total this would have been you know the the four pots held you know somewhere between, you know, uh, you know, 40 and 60 gallons a piece. So that would have been, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, um, you know, 120 to 180 gallons. That would have roughly, you know, say if we translate that into liters, we probably would have been looking around a thousand bottles of wine, give or take, you know, and kind of fuzzy doing it on the fly. So, you know, it would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand bottles of modern wine that Jesus made at this wedding for the wedding feast. Now, this, the thing. They'd already been drinking because the host of the wedding, upon tasting this, he says, now, wait a second. Most of the time they serve the good wine first. And then after people have drank, then, you know, the, te- the taste buds kind of, you know, uh, weaken down, you know, uh, get a little intoxication upon it. And so uh, then they serve the lesser wine, the not good wine. But here, what you've made is good. You saved the best for last. The the newer wine is the better wine. Now, not only does that have a prophetic nature to it of the of the new church and being the new manifestation of the Holy Spirit, the new anointing. Um, not only do we have that in play here, but we also see they'd already been drinking. Jesus just made a thousand bottles of wine. I don't know that you have ever been to a wedding where a thousand bottles of wine was consumed all right, that is a big wedding. That's a lot of wine for after they've already started the wedding and after people have already begun to have some drink that then shows up 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's even better than the first stuff that people were drinking. And so, that's at the very beginning that, uh, that he did this. And now I heard one time, you know, a guy was trying to refute the, the you know, scriptural position on wine and on uh, drinking alcohol itself. And he said, yeah, but you know, the thing is, Jonathan, is that he didn't make wine. He made grape juice. Well, number one, that goes against the Bible. The Bible clearly says wine, never says grape juice. It says wine. And, um, you know, according to strong concordance, it is wine. But uh, then he said, he went on to further explain his position. He said, because you see, um, wine takes time because of fermentation. And so fermentation would have taken place to make it wine. And it didn't t- have the time involved for, to ferment. And so it had to be grape juice. Jesus turned water into grape juice. Now, friends, can you imagine believing that, that our God can change water into grape juice, but that his divine authority stops at fermentation. Can you imagine that? How silly is that? That's a ridiculous position to take. But that's how the mental gymnastics that people have to put on in order to hold to their personal convictions and try to apply those personal convictions to the convictions of God. And I'm sorry, they can be your convictions, but you can't say that they are God's convictions because what do we call it when you say something that God doesn't say? Um, Well, if you say God said something that God did not say, that is heresy. That is heresy, and that's a serious thing. We never want to be in that situation. We want to make sure that whatever we can say, we can validate with the word of God. So anything we say that God said, we better either have proof or that we can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had said this or had meant this, had intended this, or else we become heretics, and we do not want to fall under the judgment of heresy or under the judgment of a heretic. So, yeah, he turned it into wine. He didn't turn it into grape juice and was limited by fermentation. Um, That is a a ridiculous uh, argument to make, and it was quite humorous when I first heard it and had to show a lot of mercy and compassion to not hurt the weaker brother's conscience there that uh, our God is more powerful than fermentation. Um, So... In that, you know, we see that. We even see at the Last Supper when Jesus says, This is my blood, he's got a cup of wine there. You know, that's what he's using, even to represent his blood at the you know, at the Last Supper. All throughout the Old Testament, we go through the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and we are replete with all of these examples where God says to give a drink offering, which is a wine offering, that they offered wine as a sacrifice to our God. That's something that he accepted. He He uh, He glorified in it. He accredited it to their account for them to offer up a drink offering to him. So with the turtle doves, with the sheep, with the ox, you know, or with the bullock, with um, the grain and all of these other things, there was also a wine offering that was given to God. So Jesus made it. Not only did Jesus make it, but we also see that Jesus drank wine himself. That was one of the things that was said about John the Baptist was that John the Baptist was a, um, you know, that they said that uh, in Luke, uh, Luke seven, Luke seven, it said that uh, John the Baptist came and that he didn't eat bread or he didn't drink wine. And they said he was a devil. And then Jesus replies, the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, oh, well, brother Jonathan, it says eating and drinking. It didn't say drinking wine. It said that John the Baptist didn't drink wine, but Jesus had just said drinking. What else do you think he's talking about here? You know, that, that that he was drinking water and he thought to put that in there? You know, no, he's eating bread. He's drinking wine. This is following the statement right there in Luke 7. And then he says, and you call the son of God, the son of man, that you call him a glutton and a wine bibber. They wouldn't have called him a wine bibber for drinking water. They wouldn't have called him a wine bibber for drinking grape juice. He's consuming wine too. So he's saying, John didn't do it. And you said he was of the devil. Here I come and I'm I'm eating bread and I'm drinking wine because this is a time of celebration because of the son of God is here in the flesh. And here you're calling me a glutton because I'm eating bread and you're calling me a wine bibber because I'm drinking wine and that you're saying that I'm a friend to sinners and to tax collectors and to all of these, into drunkards and all of this. And so there, you know, Jesus himself admits to the drinking of wine that he drank it, he made it, God accepted it as uh, sacrifices to him, that was one of the things that we see in scripture. So it's acceptable by God. It's Jesus made it and distributed it. Jesus drank it himself. We even go into the, uh, into the New Testament, and there we have several passages. We have the famous passage with First uh, Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine, not to drink just water, but to take a little wine for your often infirmities and for your stomach. And so we have it all through. We have it in the Old Testament. We have it in the Gospels. We have it in the Epistles. So there, it's complete. It's all through. It's not just simply something you can say, oh, it was then and not then. It's here, but it's not there. It was a seasonal thing. You know, No, we can't make any of those. We have to just tell the truth and say what it is. So we see the purpose of it. It's a celebration. We even see that God says that that's one of the things he will bless his people with, that they'll be blessed with their corn. They'll be blessed with their crops. They'll be blessed with their flocks and they'll be blessed with their wine. How about that? So that's even one of the things that he says that he will bless his people with. So he treats it as a blessing. It's meant to make merry. It has a celebration aspect to it that it's a good thing. It's also, we see that it has a medicinal use to it, that it's something that can be used medicinally, that it's good for the stomach. It's good for often you know, infirmities and that Timothy is actually told to take it by Paul. And so the same Paul that writes in Romans chapter 14 that uh, it's good not to eat flesh or drink wine, nor whereby, you know, or anything whereby my brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. The same Paul that wrote Romans 14 also wrote 1 Timothy chapter 3. So we have to take that into account and we have to use it properly. Now, something that's fun to look at here is that Romans chapter 14 is not talking about a prohibition against drinking alcohol. What it's actually talking about is the offense of eating meat you know, that if he's eating meat, that, you know, sacrificed to idols or these various things, and that if a weaker brother is offended by it, that he doesn't want to offend his, the weaker brother. And so he would abstain from those things. But in the very same passage, he says that nothing is unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth it unclean, to him it's unclean. So if it comes down to a matter of conscience, if we don't have a commandment from God, to do something or to abstain from something then the whole principle comes down to a matter of conscience and so if it's a matter of conscience if you feel a conviction and you you know, don't, you know there's not something to withhold you biblically there's no commandment against it then you can you know then you can abstain from it okay then you can participate or not participate depending upon your personal conviction but your personal conviction is not the word of God, and you cannot declare it as such, and you can't hold other people to your standard because you and your word is not the word of God. So you can say, I choose not to. I view it this way, I don't think that it's wise i don't you know I don't uh, participate in this because of this reason, and that's perfectly valid. It doesn't make anyone a better Christian to abstain. It doesn't make anybody a worse Christian to uh, to drink a little bit of wine. it It has no impact whatsoever. God is permissive on this. however, we do see some restriction placed upon it, okay? So now let's move into that next thing of that now that we know that it's, per, that it's permissive, we also have the issue of that uh, God gives us a lot of warnings about it as well. We see a lot of bad stuff happen with the drinking of wine or the overindulgence of wine, not just simply the drinking of it, but in the getting drunk off of it, that it lowers somebody's mental ability, it lowers their their faculties, and it can be used as a conduit to sin. So, drunkenness is a sin, but also the intoxicating effects of drinking can be used as a conduit to sin. And this is the big problem in American culture, especially, is that alcohol is often used as a conduit to sin. So people will over overindulge, they will drink too much, they will become intoxicated or even tipsy to quote-unquote take the edge off so that then they engage in other activities which are sinful as well. And that's the problem in American culture because American culture is one of excess. We don't have a culture of moderation, but rather we have a culture of overindulgence. So we can't just have a candy bar; we have to have a king size. We can't just have a, a you know a, a pizza; we have to have an extra large pizza. You know, we can't just have a meat pizza; we have to have a meat lovers pizza. Um, you know, we, we can't just have a, a vehicle; we have to have the biggest vehicle possible. You know, we can't just have a a nice. Uh, a nice home. We have to have the biggest home we can possibly afford. We can't have a television on the wall. We have to have it as big as the wall, so it screams at us all the time. And you know, and, and it looks like the people are in the room with us. I mean, it, we we have a culture of too much. That's why we have shopaholics. That's why I have such high credit card debt. Living within our means, self discipline, moderation is something that the American church and the American people deal with. Okay, this is just something that we have a problem with. So the solution isn't necessarily abstinence, it's self-control. It's moderation, all things in moderation. And so we see that Noah gets drunk, and there we have the issue with, uh, with Ham and Canaan. We see that Lot becomes drunk, and in Genesis 19, we have the situation of incest with Lot and his daughters. We see that Isaac uh, was drinking wine. Whenever he accidentally gave the blessing to the wrong family, uh, I mean, we have Samson, who is the drunken wine wino of the time. You know, I mean, he is the warning of all warnings to parents. I know that we kind of prop him up as a as an example or as a hero in the Bible, but uh, honestly. Samson is a spoiled brat, man. You go back and you read his account in in uh, you know in the Book of Judges, and Samson is a spoiled brat, man. His parents spoiled that kid rotten, and God has to use that rotten undisciplined, just wild man, uh, you know, that is a a drunkard. Uh, His parents have to pay for his friends. Yeah, you know, he didn't have any friends for his wedding. His parents had to hire people to pretend to be his friends. Imagine that. Imagine you being such a terrible person that your parents have to pay kids to hang out with you. So it's kind of like a fraternity. And so, you know, he's a spoiled brat. They had to pay for his friends. And then he couldn't even get a woman to like him. He had to pay prostitutes. So the women he hung out with were paid. His friends were paid. He was just a spoiled brat, dishonored his parents, didn't take his Nazarite vow uh, seriously, went through, he drank, Uh, You know, he drank of wine, then he would uh, touch dead bodies, uh, and then uh, ultimately ends up telling them, you know, that they can cut his hair, that Delilah, you know, for them to cut his hair, and his strength would go away. Well, at that point, he's broken all three points of the Nazarite vow. And so he had no vow with God, had no relationship with God, and so his strength went away. And it wasn't until he repented and, and his hair started to grow back. You know, basically he retook the vow that then he was able to honor God, at least in his death, because his life was a train wreck. And so that's what we see there. So we see a lot of problems with wine, you know, we see Revelation, or uh, you know, Proverbs chapter 20, where it uh, talks about that wine is a mocker and strong drink is a rager. And uh, the teetotalers love to quote that verse. Uh, what that just simply means is that, you know, people drink too much wine, their mouth starts to run off. They start to say things they would normally say. That tongue kind of gets a little loose. And then with strong drink, which would be your liquors, you know, people who drink a lot of liquor tend to be violent. Okay, so that's an overindulging too. Okay, so that is still in agreement with no drunkenness. Drunkenness has no part of a Christian's life. If you are a Christian, you are not to drink to drunkenness. No Christian is advocating for that. The Christians who have read the Bible and see the doctrine there know that it is moderation. It's small amounts, irrefrequently irre- frequently. That, that is it. So it is a beverage. It's not. Uh, it's not something that we use for the effects. So now, if I, you know, if you invited me over to your house for dinner, and uh, and I showed up with a cooler, and in the cooler there was you know, a 24 pack of Dr. Peppers and man, the whole time we're eating dinner and we're hanging out and we're watching TV or we're talking, I'm just pounding Dr. Peppers, you know, left and right. You know, and I get to, you know, number 12, number 13, you're going to go, Hey, Jonathan, man, you want to slow down? What is going on with you, man? That's going to wreak havoc on those kidneys and all. You're going to get a, a, you know, a a, a tract infection or something, you know, like, you know, you can't do this. That's too many calories. You're going to be fat and gelatinous. You know, there's going to be all these issues and I just keep pounding them, man. I get to eight, 18, 19, 20, you know, then you're going to say, dude, you've got a real problem with Dr. Pepper. And that's the same with beer or alcohol or wine or anything. So instead of just drinking it as a beverage of choice, people overconsume it because they're looking for the effects of overconsumption. They're wanting the drunkenness. They're drinking for the drunkenness. The drunkenness is the issue, not the product itself. It's how they're actually using it and so, there, you know, that's what the the most often verse that they go to. That's exactly what it means, you know. So there's definitely a deterrent there. Also, it says that when you have a, you know, when you have a position of great authority, that a, a sober mind is of a high opinion. You know, so we see that in Leviticus 10, where uh, you know where Aaron's uh, sons conjure up strong a strange fire on the altar of God, and God just kills them. And then Moses, you know, God tells Moses, hey, call, you know, call Aaron to come in here. We got to tell him. And in that he tells him, he says, don't drink any alcohol, don't drink any wine and come into the tabernacle that the priest has a serious job to do. And he needs to take it seriously. And his mind needs to be clear and uninhibited when he does it. We also see that kings and princes aren't to do it either because whenever they drink wine or drink strong drink while they're on the bench while they're, you know, executing judgments and hearing cases and deciding on public policy, you know, to implement for the people of God, that they may under the influence of alcohol pervert justice. They may not make a wise decision that serious things are owed a serious mind. And so with that, you know, that's another prohibition that we see that God says for us not to do those things. Now the other one that I've heard people quote a lot is in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where uh, there's this there's this verse man in Deuteronomy chapter 32, is Moses going off on the people about the harlotry and idolatry. And and when they go into the promised land, if they start to whore around with all of the pagan gods around them, that uh, God's blessing will be removed from them. And then they will uh, basically suffer God's judgment that God will uh, cleanse his people. Either they will be a clean people or God will cleanse his people. You know, And so either you're holy or God goes through the process of sanctification to make you holy. And so uh, um, in there, there's this one verse that says, their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Well, the verse right before that, well, first, let's deal with that. Okay. So first off, um, wine isn't poison. Nobody drinks wine and dies. And you definitely don't go out to the dragon and milk it for wine. I mean, you know, nobody has a wine dragon in their backyard and they're carrying the milk bucket out there to, to get some wine from them. So no, wine does not come from dragons, okay? And in the same way, um, you don't get wine from snakes either. So, you know, we don't milk snakes and get wine either. So it's clearly a euphemism, okay? So it's not poison and it's not venom. He's using this as the same way he uses in Revelation where he talks about the wine Wine of God's wrath will be poured out. Um, God's wrath is not wine either. You know, so like you're not going to get grape juice spilled on them. You know, fermented grape juice spilled on them uh, in the last days. All right. God's wrath is not wine in the same way. What he's talking about here is in the very... The verse right before it, he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking about the lostness, the pride of heart that leads people away from God and leads people towards godlessness that that is what. Is the wine of the lost world? That is the intoxicant. Is sin, and people get a depraved mind, and they're drawn away towards sin and carnal pleasures and lust, and and that's what takes them down that road. And that's the same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you become raving, raping bands of homosexuals trying to uh, rape to death visitors that come into your city. Um, and that that wasn't the first occasion that it happened either, because Lot told them. Uh, you know, he yells to the people who are knocking. On his door saying, Bring out those dudes, you know, that we may know them carnally. And he says, For this reason, I told him to come into my house. He knew it was going to happen. Lot had seen it happen before. So he'd saw strangers get raped to death in the city streets. And he decided, You know what? I'm going to try to save these dudes and get them in my house where out of sight, out of mind, maybe this won't happen. So now we see another clue that, Hey, maybe those dudes, on top of being that, were a drunken mob of you know, rapist homosexuals. And so, uh, and so that's what it's talking about there too. Now, what we have is we have a very clear thing. Okay. We have a very clear thing that God blesses us with wine God created it. God knows that it'll ferment. God created it knowing that, and then he says that he'll bless them in it. He'll bless them with it. He accepts it as an offering to him. It's an acceptable offering. We see Jesus making it. We see Jesus saying that he consumes it, and that even then they call him a wine-bibber. Now, in America today, we have the issue with, like I said, overindulgence, and because people treat this in a way that it's not treated in the rest of the world, um, you know, if you go to places like Italy, then it's extremely common to sit down at a diner and everybody drinks wine. All right, even if you have a family there, that even the young ones will drink wine. Um, you go into parts of uh, Belgium or, or uh, uh, Germany, and hey, they, they might even serve beer to the kids at a restaurant. You know I mean? Like it's not a thought of, I'm going to sit here and drink, you know, five, six, 10, 12 of these and get drunk at the table. But it's just that this is a beverage with my meal. In America, that's not really part of our culture so much um, because of the teetotaler, because of some religious movements and things like that, that, you know, put out this, we're going to cure the world by trying to make people moral like us instead of having our God, we just are going to force them to behave like us. And so what they, what they've done is uh, take it to an extreme and to a place that's unfruitful and doesn't make any sense. All right. So, um, With America's culture of overindulgence, America's culture of not enough but too much, of being blessed to the point of just being spoiled brats, what we've come down to is that uh, we don't know how to handle it, and we don't know how to control it, and we don't know how to do it rightly. Now, the solution isn't abstinence. The solution is education. The solution is saying this is what God says about it, and so that's how we're going to handle it that it can be a blessing. It has a purpose. It can be used medicinally, which by the way, you know, if you want to argue against that, then, by all means, don't turn over the Nyquil bottle and read the instru- you know, read the ingredients, or else, you know, I'm sorry, you may have to repent on Sunday. Um, there's a large portion of alcohol in Nyquil in your cough syrups and things like that. Um, so it has a medicinal purpose. It has a celebratory purpose to uh make the heart merry or to make people glad. Um then also in the very same passage that it's telling us that print you know kings and princes shouldn't drink it or else they pervert justice. The, the there in uh, Proverbs uh, 31, it, it goes right on and it starts to tell us that um, give wine to the poor, give wine to the brokenhearted, because then they can drink and forget their troubles. So it also has a mental health issue with it as well. So it has its purpose and it has its place. Its place is not to be an intoxicant. Its place is not to be overindulged in and, uh, and to be you know made a mockery out of. It's not something to be addicted to. Uh, we even see that with the deacons and the elders of the church are called not to be given too much wine. Now that's an important verb and an important adjective. Much means a lot. That's what much means. And so it doesn't mean a little, it means a lot. And so you're not given too much wine, never prohibits the the drinking at all, but rather just says that they shouldn't be ones that get tipsy or start to feel the effects, the intoxicating effects of alcohol. But then it also says that you're not to be given to it. That means that you don't give your strength over to it; that you're not overcome by it. There should be no addiction to it, and that there should be not a overindulgence of it. So, no addiction, no overindulgence. What it really comes down to is that we are supposed to, uh, we're supposed to consume alcohol. The two things that we take into account, if you choose to, you know, drink alcohol, is one the frequency of it and two, the quantity of it. So frequency and quantity, that's what it comes down to. So the drunk is definitely drinking too much of a quantity, and if he is a drunkard, then he's also doing it too frequently. So too much, too frequent. He's got two problems. Now, the thing is, is that we can either drink ear frequently, or we can drink frequently, and we can either drink too much or drink in moderation so it should be rare and it should be in small amounts so it shouldn't be something that we do on a daily basis it shouldn't be something that we're looking forward to friday because boy friday night you know, we're fixing to lay one over, but no, that's not how we do it. And, you know, there's not the overindulgence. No matter how rare it is, the overindulgence is not something for us. And then also, it shouldn't be that every day when I get home from work, I have to have a couple beers. That would be too frequent, even though the quantity isn't. So you may be given to it. You may have a mental addiction to it where you think you need it. You have to have it, even if it's not to the point of drunkenness. So if you can't go without it, without it being a problem, then you have a problem. And at the same time, if you can't get around it without overindulging and becoming drunk, then you have a problem. And both of those things are sin. You're given too much wine. You're consuming too much or you're consuming too often. So it should be rare and in small amounts. It can be a blessing if we control it, but at the same time, if we're out of control with it, if we allow it to control us, then that's the point where we make it a curse. So it's almost like we should apply the fruit of the Spirit and have self-control in this matter. So it says, Ecclesiastes, all things in moderation, it should be something that we absolutely take advantage of for its medicinal properties, for its mental health properties, for its merriment, but it's not something we overindulge in. It's not something that we make a huge part of our life that we dance around, but rather it's something that is in its proper context. And that's it. In its place, it can be a blessing. It can be a good thing. God calls it to be a sacrifice to him, Jesus made it. Jesus drank it. We even see um, you know, Melchizedek, which a lot of people say was a manifestation of Jesus, of a pre-incarnate Christ. And uh, there, whenever he is meeting with Abram, what does he do? He presents bread and wine. Okay, so we can't escape it. It is all through scripture. There's over 230 references to wine. There's over uh, 20 or 30 references to strong drink. I mean, it's all throughout scripture. If we made a list of, of, our, of our biblical characters who consumed wine, then man, it would just be pretty much everybody in the Bible. I mean, you know, if it talks about them at all consuming a meal, then there was going to be wine with it. So now let's kind of take a turn. Let's talk about some of the uh, arguments against it that people have said, you know, through the past, or at least that's been presented to me, because be honest with you guys, this is one of those things that it ain't a big deal. I really don't even care about it you know that uh, but it's something that throughout the you know now 20 you know around 20 years since I uh, began in ministry that uh, I've had to constantly fight this battle or constantly take shots you know people you know take shots at me about this belief but it is the biblical belief and so the arguments that I've heard from people were first off that um, you know uh, that they didn't have clean water and that's the reason why they drank the wine was because they didn't have clean water well, number one, that's kind of dumb because when you look at how civilizations were built, they were all built around clean water. People would go and find the clean water. That's why the majority of the Earth's populations were all oceanfront, seafront, lakefront, front. That's where they would build the civilizations was because there was good water. So that's a bad point. You know, that's, you know, somebody doesn't understand geography. But then also, So something is a sin if I have clean water, but it's not a sin if I don't have clean water. That's you know if I wanted to be a drunkard I would just move somewhere with dirty water like you know Jackson Mississippi or Flint Michigan and then man I can just uh, I can just drink all I want to and justify it because uh, I ain't got no clean water that's dumb that's dumb on its face and so uh, you know that's just a a poor a poor 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 thought out argument whatsoever so uh, the entire biblical narrative does not take place around bitter water. It takes place around clean water, around good wells that were dug. Um, you know, that's that's the thing, and so we can't escape that. That's a that's a poor argument. The other thing that uh, that I've heard is people say, "Well, Jonathan, you don't understand. The wine back then wasn't like what we have today, um, because it was very weak in proofage, and uh, and so the percentage of alcohol was very weak. And then they mixed it with water, also, and so um, you know, and and so you know, that's what they drank was just extremely watered down wine. Well, now I get that. I mean, but what you also have to understand is, you know, I got five kids, man, and you know, the juice bill on five kids runs huge. And so, uh, you know, we started a long time ago, you know, that sippy cup goes half, you know, half with juice and half with water, uh, one to water down the juice. So there's not so many calories cause I don't want chunky butt babies running around, but I want them to be healthy. And, uh, and then also, you know, there's more sugar in apple juice than there is Coca-Cola, you know, per volume, per volume there. So just cause it's juice doesn't mean it's healthy, but also because, uh, that stuff's expensive and we want it to go further. So a little bit of, a little bit of, um, flavor added to the water Was the goal to get them to drink it and and to be nourished, uh, versus uh, just consuming the straight apple juice and having too many calories and having a sugar fit and you're a sugar overload from it. And so, and and so you know I understand that I understand that principle I understand that argument. That's a good one. Okay. The only problem is is then what we're arguing over is proofage. We're not arguing over actually drinking alcohol, we're arguing over how much alcohol. So you actually agree with me. You're actually saying the consumption of alcohol itself is not a problem. The consumption is the proofage. And then we have to come down to what's the holy proofage? Is the holy proofage 40 proof? Is it, you know, is it 6% alcohol? Is it 3% alcohol? Uh, Is is it less than that? Is it more than that? You know, and then does it count with uh, NyQuil? Does it count with, you know, medical wine that's prescribed to you like during prohibition? Or, you know, what, what are we arguing over? What is the holy proof? There is no holy proof. Okay. So the thing is, don't get drunk. Drink in moderation. All right pay attention to the quantity and the frequency that consumption of alcohol should be rare and in small amounts. That's the answer. Not some, you know, trying to figure out what the holy proofage is. If we water down whiskey enough, then it's acceptable to God. But, you know, if we offer the strong stuff, then that's, that's an abhorrence. Um, no, that's not in scripture either, bro. We can't find that, okay? So we just have to abandon our personal preferences and realize that that's another dumb argument. We're arguing proof. We're not arguing over or percentages. We're not arguing you know, a teetotaler standpoint there. The other thing that I heard was that it was just grape juice. Well, if their wine was only grape juice, then that brings the whole question of drunkenness in. What in the world is drunkenness if they had no wine, if it was just grape juice, because I've drank grape juice and I've never gotten drunk off of it. And I've never known anybody else doing it either. So that's another dumb argument. If God wanted to say grape juice, he could have said grape juice. He chose wine. The Hebrews wrote it down as wine. The Greek, uh, you know, the New Testament authors wrote it in Greek as wine, not as grape juice. That's another bad argument. So we're going to go ahead and scratch that one off. And uh, I'm going to let them go, not make fun of them because, uh, you know, even God has special children. So uh, then the other argument I've heard is, well, man, if it takes 12 beers to get drunk, then if you drink one beer, then you're one twelfth drunk. No, that's dumb, too. Okay, that's like saying if it takes me four hamburgers to be a glutton and I eat one hamburger, then I'm one fourth a glutton. Um, no, you, you can't argue that that's dumb too. Where does that stop? You know, if we're going to start putting fractions on sins, then, um, you know, then, you know, that's it, man. You know, uh, algebra stinks because we started putting the alphabet in math. If we start putting fractions in, in our, you know, in our diet, then, um, that's where I check out. I'm sorry. That, that doesn't make any sense either. Either it is or it's not. And the thing is, is that it's not a sin, no matter how hard you try to make it, no matter how much you try to manipulate it around, it's just not. It's just not, guys. So just believe the word of God. Just do what he says. And if you choose to abstain, just say that it's your choice. That's all you have to do is just say, it's my choice. I choose not to. I hate cabbage. I choose not to eat cabbage. Eating cabbage is not a sin, okay? You can eat all the cabbage. Please do eat my portion of cabbage. I will send it to you, okay? I I do not want it, but it's not a sin. And it'd be very stupid of me to say that God said it was when it's clearly not. Can you imagine God saying, offer me up the cabbage and Jesus making cabbages and Jesus eating cabbage and then me saying that eating cabbage is a sin? That would be stupid. All right. We have to follow to its logical conclusion. And it is that it's not a sin to consume wine or to consume alcohol if it's a little bit and if it's infrequent. Okay, if it's a little bit on rare occasions, then it's perfectly fine. If it's used for merriment Not every week, not every day, not constantly, not to an abundance where we're getting drunk or even tipsy, but man, you know, just a little bit here and there as a celebration, perfectly fine, perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. Historically, the church has had no problem with it until we got to the church in America. And when we got to the church in America, all of a sudden we had an overindulgence because we were so outrageously blessed and we acted like spoiled brats. So instead of enjoying our piece of cake, we want to eat the whole cake and then crack open a box of Little Debbie's also. Okay, we can't just have the pie. We have to have pie with ice cream and caramel sauce. And then we cut a piece of pie, set it to the side, and then eat the rest of the pie. All right, that, that's our problem is that we can't just have self-control. And we can't say all things in moderation. We can't just say to him who esteems it to be unclean, it's unclean. No, we have to say, well, if I, este- if I esteem it to be unclean, then it's unclean for all y'all too. Man, your opinion don't matter that much. what matters is the word of God. And what does God say? It's very painfully clear that God says, don't get drunk. But the rare occasion of drinking is fine in small numbers, in small doses, in small amounts. It's perfectly fine. There's no problem with it. Okay. Now, again, we have a strong deterrence from drunkenness. We see warnings all over of what drunkenness does. Drunkenness is never portrayed in a good light. It's always either in a mocking light or or added to sinful behavior, contributing to sinful behavior, or contributing to victimhood. You know, that you know, you shouldn't go out into public and get drunk. Bad things can happen. You can do bad things. And bad things can happen to you when you become incapacitated. Look at, look at No. Noah, look at Lot, those type of things can happen to you when you get publicly intoxicated and you can't control yourself. It's extremely stupid. Don't do it. God says, don't do that. So we shouldn't do that. God also says not to say that he said things that he didn't say, that that's heresy. And we should not do that either. So if you say that drinking is a sin, you're wrong. You're wrong. Okay? If we can just take that rock out of the lost person's hands, because guess what? Everything that I said right now, you go to a lost person in the South, they know this. They absolutely know this. And so some teetotaler Christian comes along, and um, that you know values their opinion, or mom and dad's opinion, or granny's opinion, or even the the you know the the chunky butt preacher down at the church house's opinion. And what will happen is um they want to argue the somebody else's opinion, and then the the person who's drinking knows. That Jesus turned the water into wine and they were already drunk. And then they said, hey, how come you, you know save the best stuff for the last? They they know all of this stuff. And all they're going to do is be better theologians in their drunkenness. You're giving them a rock to throw at you because you're not arguing the word of God. You're arguing the word of grandmama or pappy or the the preacher or something. Okay, so so in that, let us be people who say, hey, self-control, moderation. That's where we need it. That's where we all need it, man. We all need it. We're all carrying extra weight. We could all use, you know, a a good diet and exercise plan. We could all use uh, knowing when to say no and when not to visit the buffet for a second plate, not to go back to the dessert, you know, not to get four desserts on on those tiny little plates that they put at the church social, Um, you know, not to try to fit and cram as much as we can, cut down on the sugar, cut down on the processed foods, um, you know, get outside, see some sunlight, get your feet dirty do some work. You know, uh, we we all know that we need to do those things. All right. We all need a big lesson in self-control. So instead of just perverting things to your opinion, what we need to do is just simply focus on what does God say? So don't drink to excess. It has its place. God's okay with it. God accepts it as an offering. God calls it a blessing that he will bestow upon his people. He will reward them in their corn and in their grain and in their flocks and in their wine. Jesus produced wine. Jesus consumed wine. People wanted to call him a drunkard or a wine bibber when he was never a, a drunk. We never have an instance of that. It's just what people wanted to say. They wanted to impose their morality upon God himself. Man, if they wanted to do it to God, you don't stand a chance either. So in that, let us not be hypocrites. Let us not be Pharisees. And definitely let us not be heretics. But in that, let us be controlled by the spirit and not by the flesh. Let us do all things in moderation and to the glory of God. And let us speak the truth with our neighbors. Let's put away all line and speak the truth with our neighbors. And that we speak the truth in love. Well, friends, this has been another episode of the Woodshed. I am Brother Jonathan here with you, and uh, and we're just having a good time. So I appreciate you hanging out for this last or for this next episode. And um, and so in that, hit the like button, hit the share button, leave us a review. Uh, you know, if whatever player that you're uh, you know, listening to us on, give us a rating, write us a review. The written reviews are especially good to help with the algorithm. We don't spend any money on budgeting, uh, you know, for any kind of advertising or anything like that. It's solely up to you. If this grows, if it's impactful, if you think that this is a good thing, then hey, help us grow it. Help us reach others. Help us teach the word of God and help us to keep telling the truth even when it hurts. Friends, until next time, I'll see you, ya, and uh, y'all stay well. Read your Bibles, pray every day, talk to God, look for His ways, live in His wisdom, spread His word, invite somebody to church this week, friends. Until next time, this has been Brother Jonathan at the Woodshed. I'll talk to y'all later.